This is the Early Childhood Research Podcast and you're listening to Episode 12. Welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast, where we tell you how the latest research can help in your home and in your classroom. Hello, I'm Liz, the host of the Early Childhood Research Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. This is Episode 12, And it's a follow-on from last week's interview about loving and educating children with autism. This interview is with Jen and Brad Ratcliffe, who have two boys aged 15 and 12, who both have moderate to severe autism. Brad and Jen have also both worked in education. We've talked about their experiences leading up to diagnosis, the many, many classes and therapies they've tried, and the difficulties special needs can put on the family, particularly if there's long-term denial. On the teaching side, we've talked about how we can develop relationships with non-communicative children, how to help our neurotypical children understand and be supportive of their autistic friend and how to communicate with parents of special needs students to give them confidence and to develop an open and trusting dialogue. This next half of our interview starts with three suggestions for teachers in the mainstream classroom, then goes on to goal setting and the most effective ways to utilise support teachers. This podcast is part of the Education Podcast Network at www.edupodcastnetwork.com. You can find the transcript of this interview plus links to books and other resources by going to lizzesearlylearningspot.com, clicking on the podcast tab and looking for episode 12. And of course, you'll find the first half of the interview in episode 11. Let's move on to the next part of our interview. If you could choose three strategies or priorities for a mainstream teacher to incorporate into their inclusive classroom, what would they be? Definitely the first thing I think all children on the spectrum and even maybe every child can benefit from uh, is visual supports. So using visual support for the timetable because a a lot of kids on the spectrum can have anxiety around what's going to be happening next so supporting the the day and the next activity that's coming and using timers and also verbal prompting as well so giving the advance notice of any changes that are going to take place especially in a mainstream school sometimes they can be okay we can't go to the library today so we have to go tomorrow well that might be enough to put someone in the spectrum into a meltdown so be able to advise them of that and hopefully supporting that visually as well and that will help with the whole day for everybody it's going to help everyone and the second thing would be to have calming strategies some children on the spectrum actually listen better while they're fiddling with something or they've got right. a sensory toy to hold on to which is interesting because you think oh you mustn't be paying attention because you're fiddling with something normally teachers would say put everything out of your hands so actually being aware and, and allowing that to take place, knowing that that's going to benefit that child is probably another good strategy. And even if the other children in the class say, oh, why is he allowed to hold on to the spiky ball or the whatever he's got, the squeezy ball? Well, and again, if, you, if a teacher can implement a sixth sense type of strategy yeah. and explain, well, this is helping uh, yeah. little Johnny to be calm and to listen, then why can't you have one because you don't need that? Although, I mean, who knows? I think there's probably a lot of kids out there who yeah. are undiagnosed and could do with some support, but it's not going to hurt them to have some things in place anyway, like That's the visual right. supports that will probably benefit the whole classroom. Yeah, I think a lot of teachers do do that now. Yeah. You know, 
they'll have a place where you can go and find a squeezy ball or something like that. No. Yeah. The third thing is similar to what you just said. It's a place to retreat, to know that they can go... And I know a lot of kids on the spectrum already go to the library at lunch and things like that. Um, Having a place where that's safe and quiet that they can go. And it's not the time out corner. Yeah, that's right. And it's not a matter that they're in trouble. It's just a place that they can go and building those times into the day for any student that you have on the spectrum that will help them to be able to concentrate better. But if we, as a teacher, if we just expect that the child's going to be able to cope, for want of a better word, with uh, full class events um, back to back to back to back when they do end up not being able to cope anymore or they kick someone or hit someone or run out of the room and there's some sort of behavior we're not happy with sometimes it's good to think okay how could we have made that a little bit smoother so we didn't end up where we ended up so those big events like when you were talking about those assemblies for your own child and when there's party days or when it's leading up to christmas and there seems to be a lot of extra activities going on the teacher needs to think about well let's let the child give them some space even before they request it themselves that's right yeah have that built in so that then that means that the child will know that they're going to have that a little bit of a reprieve so that they can regulate themselves yeah yeah that's right it's actually going to benefit everyone in the classroom and help enhance their learning capacity can I just add one more more strategy sure. that uh, we use in the support class? And I, I don't know how uh, a mainstream class can implement this as, as well, but each morning the first thing that we do as soon as the kids come into uh, the classroom is a, uh, a sensory gym. And basically uh-huh. it's, a, it's a program okay. um, that we have incorporated through uh, sensory tools and they come up with a, a way of setting up a sensory gym where you're getting the kids moving and crawling and using their upper body and their core and we set that up with music so we use fit balls and they climb over cushions and through tunnels and um, we've even now have a like a ball pit in our corridor that the kids crawl through Um, and we've been doing this for six years and and the other part of this program is when you start to bring them back down and we we introduce a breathing program so basically you're you're then introducing them to uh, blowers like whistles or party blowers or even just uh, bubbles anything where they have to blow and and to blow into something the the child has to take yeah they have to take a deep breath to blow so that is helping their their breathing so that's starting to bring them down and then we finish with a, a deep compression massage they all lay on their stomachs and then uh, we roll a football uh, over their legs and back. Oh, uh, and what we, that's a great idea. Yeah, and what we... Uh, sounds, like, sounds like a good way to start the day, doesn't it? And what we introduce <laughs> is the slower music uh, into, the, into the breathing program and then into that really calm music. And right. every morning we do that, we get them then to go up for morning circle. We have them all there listening, sitting, not fidgeting for the entire morning session. Sometimes wow. we can get them through even after recess... Uh, into the middle session sometimes obviously we start to lose them uh, after that in that morning session that's when we do our key learning after that sensory gym so if if a a mainstream teacher wants their child to be more intently learning uh, and more engaged in their learning then sensory gym a sensory gym is definitely the key. or any sort of physical activity if anyone just looks up sensorytools.com i think it is 
um, yeah, you can get some great information great. on that. And how how long in the mornings do you? Oh, do it's that? about twenty minutes to, to half an hour. Right. We give it a good go uh, in the morning. Yeah, if it's just a one-off, one student kind of thing, you could probably do it for for ten or fifteen. But you, you definitely yeah. need to uh, give them the time to to build up, get those big muscles in their chest and arms going, get their core right. engaged. So that like just even having a fit ball rolling on a fit ball like you're you're um. On your arms, like you yeah. know, uh, a wheelbarrow race, you know, yeah. and having the ball just on your on your ankles, um, and just even bouncing on the ball is engaging the core, and just getting them crawling around on, on cushions and stuff. Obviously, the key is then just to bringing them back down again with the blowing program. <laughs> right. Sometimes we haven't got any clean blowers, or we've run out of bubbles. So right. even just getting them to lay on the ground with a tissue over their face and blowing the tissue off right. up in the air um, is a great way because they still have to take a deep breath and they blow. And they love it. I mean, it's such a, che- yeah. a cheap way of doing yeah. a breathing program. But, yeah, it's great. To be honest, I think lots of neurotypical kids could do very well with this kind of morning process too. I'm in a mainstream school, so right. a lot of the kids that are having issues, they might have a, a few kids just been diagnosed on the spectrum, might not have the funding yet to get the support in the classroom yet. They're actually reverse integrating the child in the morning session. And they're yeah. coming for our sensory gym program. So we sometimes have two or three extra kids because I only have a class of eight. So we might have an extra three kids that really need that program. And certainly a few of those kids have definitely shown huge improvement in their behavior and definitely in their learning within that class. The teachers can't talk enough about how much better yeah. they are when they've done it. And they can see when they haven't right. for, for different reasons that they've either been away or we haven't had it on. Then they can definitely see that there's a difference. Oh, that's excellent. It's so nice that there is somewhere where they can go to to have at least that. How old are your boys now and what are your goals for them? What do you hope that school will do for them? Cameron is 15 and Kobe is 12. They're learning in terms of academics every year. We have goals there, but really suppose we're looking to transition them into a work or activity-based program. So I mean, Cameron's in year 10 now, so these right. next couple of years we need to start to make a plan for his future. At school, we hope that he will be able to engage in as many activities and life skills, outings, and have as many adventures and do as much as he can so we don't necessarily just want him sitting at the table doing only academics not that that's not important but for our kids for example for them to write their name is still really hard but can they type yes they can type great so there's a lot of uh, actually Kobe can type better than I can yeah he can yeah (laughs) he can so uh, because of the way technology is going hopefully that's going to be good for them because um, success or failure was based on what they could write wouldn't be good because they just really find that hard so yeah it's interesting we just see it as a very much a rounded thing and I think the school that we're at now well the boys have been at quite a while now as a support school and they're also very supportive of teaching a mix of academics and life skills and giving the students opportunities to try things and do things that they might not have otherwise have done. They did a surfing program last year at the end of the year, which was great. It was very hard for us to go to the beach and Kobe, he's 12, will be 13 he made, never really been in the water at the beach because he was always so scared and overwhelmed. Uh-huh. And right. yeah, because they did this program, it was amazing. I didn't think he'd even put the wetsuit on, but he put on the wetsuit and he sat in the water and it was, wow. I was, yeah, yeah, it was incredible. I said to the 
people that were running it, I said, I know he's not standing up and surfing in on the waves, but I said, this is still massive for him. So that's the sort of thing that our school does. It puts on events and looks to widen the students' experiences in, the, in life and in the world. So that's good. I'm sure you've spoken to many parents of children with special needs. Do you feel that their goals for their children line up fairly well with school expectations or is there a disconnect? It really depends, i found. Different parents want different things for their children. So some parents want the teachers and the schools to actually fix their child's autism. Yeah, and others are simply wanting their child to be supported and live a happy and full life and just have access to as many opportunities and experiences as possible. So that's kind of where we are in the second category. But even as far as a disconnect goes, it's a bit hard to say because it is very personal. As I was saying before, we're equally interested in both the social interaction and the experiences and the academic side. So for us, it does work out well. But the thing I guess that we've seen over the years is people who have got a child who could benefit very well from being in a more specialised school, but they had trouble accepting the diagnosis. And so they thought that if they sent them to a mainstream school, then that would kind of fix the child and help them to get rid of the autism. But But it also gives the persona that they are a a normal family. That's taking it very far, isn't it? I mean, I can understand fighting the diagnosis at the beginning, but for it to go on for years and years, that's heartbreaking. And that's what we've seen. We've found that there's a very big difference in each way parents deal with the situation and some do it in an interesting way. (laughs) Um, And certainly not what we would choose because I... It's very much just trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and it's just it's sad because for some of the kids they probably and I'm not saying they haven't learned anything in their mainstream school and I'm sure for many of them it has been a wonderful experience but I think it could also bring a lot of challenges as well and then of course you do have the bullying issue which can be another thing that can pop up in mainstream that and I'm not saying it wouldn't happen at all in special needs, I'm sure it does, but it's very personal and I think schools do do the best with what the parents want because at the end of the day as a parent it's kind of up to you where you send your child and the school tries to accommodate that to the best of their abilities. So. Right. Brad, I know it's difficult to generalise when we talk about special needs because every child is different, but what do you see as the most important parts of a support teacher's role And does that differ from what mainstream teachers generally expect from a support teacher in their classroom? Well, I work in a support class with a great teacher who is special ed trained and we work well together because we respect each other and we know what strengths we both bring to the classroom and we can support each other with that. I think with a mainstream teacher, uh, they can struggle just even having another adult in the classroom right? and sometimes are unsure of how to utilise the support teacher in the classroom effectively. Not only working with the child that needs the support but also working with the entire classroom because a lot of the time it depends on the child's needs. Some children get the support, the funding to get a support teacher into a mainstream class and it just might be just because of a learning delay and so if their behaviours aren't that hard then the support teacher can generally sit one-on-one with the student but also can be observing the whole class and can help with classroom management 
And I think yeah. that's key. I think for a support teacher, just to have confidence to be aware of the whole classroom and not just the student that you're yeah. working with. The teacher needs to give the support teacher permission to say, look, I want you to help with the other kids. Unfortunately, sometimes um, that's not the case. I've heard stories of teachers sitting in the corner and waiting for the teacher to give them an instruction. Yeah. Uh, and you'll, you'll stay there until I tell you what to do. Sometimes it helps if the teacher can just maximise actually having the extra person in the room. You've almost got to sort of see it as a team teaching exercise. I know that yeah. the teacher is the actual qualified gone to uni for four or five years, but you can see some strengths that the support teacher may have yeah. and may bring to the classroom. Use it. Allow them to make a difference with how you teach the class. So instead of thinking of the support person as an intrusion, you need to sit down and think, okay, how can I maximise the benefit of having this person here? I mean, a lot of classrooms set up a lot of group work in reading groups and, and certain things. So you're always sitting with one group and you're sort of trying to come up with groups where you can leave the kids to, to do their own thing. Let, yeah. let the, the support teacher be on another group and give them something to yeah. really get the, the kids involved and engaged. The child who's there for support, wouldn't it help them if their support teacher is also mixing in with the rest of the class? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we were talking earlier on forming a relationship. Certainly it's the same with the support teacher that's coming in. You've got to make a bond with a child who has behavioural issues and who doesn't want to get to know you. And I I found that early on in, in my career as a support teacher, certainly with some students, they, they didn't want me in the room because right. they, they knew that that was what I was there for. So um, you've just got to find a way to interact and bond with them the best way that you can and, and then to be able to support student. the teacher at the same time. Right. And with the other students as and well. And with the other students as well, yeah. A few weeks ago I heard a teacher say that their principal had granted them a support teacher but that they would only cover the library and PE lessons. She requested that they help with her literacy blocks instead, but the principal said no, that the support teacher was there for the child's benefit and not for the teacher's. Speaking as a parent and as a support teacher, what would you suggest should be a principal's priorities? Not that you can speak for a principal, I suppose, (laughs) but when allocating support, knowing that there's tough choices to be made and there's never enough support staff to go around. I guess it would depend on what the priorities that the parents have discussed at their IEP meeting with the teacher. You certainly set a few goals that you want um, the child to achieve. Now, the parent may say that they want more academic achievement because they're falling behind, so that might be a priority. Academic support. Yeah, so that might mean that having the support teacher within the classroom might be a, a better fit. Uh, But if it's more that uh, the the parents are wanting more social interaction because they're not getting on with their friends, then that PE library kind of time might be Mm. the more suited time that the support teacher is there. So I guess that's where the principal just needs to be aware of what the support is for and not just because there is a support teacher in the classroom. And it would have been good if the principal could have uh, listened to what the teacher would have requested because um yeah yeah, it's it's a shame because it might not have been the best use of that time because the principal's looking after the whole entire school so it can't be so aware of each student's needs like what the teacher can so in other words there needs to be a dialogue there between the teacher and the principal and the parent to decide where is the best place yeah that's right jen i love the title of your book this was not on the brochure 
because it encapsulates that life does not always turn out the way we expected. Some families definitely have a much more difficult day-to-day life than others. In your book, you talk about having a happiness plan. What is a happiness plan and what made you come up with the idea? Uh, thank you, yes. Um, you say this was not on the brochure. And it's from the <laughs> City Slickers movie, Brad used to say that all the time when the boys were young. So, that, yes, happiness program. It's about choosing activities that are easy to incorporate into daily life. So each person will have a different happiness program and it's going to be totally unique to them. But the activities that they might put on their program might be having a coffee going to yoga walking on the beach or sitting outside in the sun for five minutes or it could be they like to watch a certain movie or get their hair done or have a coffee with a friend whatever it is it's going to be different but it's powerful because it's intentional and it just is a simple strategy that I found over the years that having something to look forward to was really something very powerful for your own mental health when you're looking at after a person with special needs and living with autism then just being aware of where you're at mentally and then just taking some steps no matter how small they were it can make a big difference to the whole situation because it's not a sprint it is a marathon where we've got um, yeah we're not in this for the short course it's a long trip and so taking care of yourself as a carer or parent of someone with a special need is crucial and here in the Illawarra there's a lot of strategies that are being implemented something new recently called care and share for autism in the last few years which is a beautiful day where mums and carers can go and have a pampering day and just have some time out because a lot of these ladies they're dealing with the everyday challenges of life but also which could be on a little bit less sleep than what they really need as well as um looking down the track to the future that's quite uncertain and I know everyone has an uncertain future but when you're not sure about how independent your child's going to be as an adult I think it's quite a scary thing for parents so happiness program it's just a simple quick easy thing to do but because it's intentional that's why it's powerful and anyone can do it in any circumstance and I think there's been a lot of research done on mental health and having something to look forward to having something that uh, down the track is going to be a special event I think that's really helpful so yeah that's what that is so what do you hope readers will get out of reading your book I hope that they are inspired to live a great life and that's even if it does look different to the one that they had planned for and hoped for because that's what can happen in our lives. Everyone has challenges from time to time and so even though parents of children with autism will totally identify with it, it's for everybody and anybody and so each chapter incorporates a strategy and sometimes a mindset as well that I've used that can help them to live really positively and hopefully to live a life in victory and not as a victim because a lot of times in life things can go a different way than we were hoping and then we can feel like a victim because it wasn't what we wanted but it doesn't help us to live our best life possible so yeah that's what I hope that they will get from it sounds great thank you thank you well I have read it I did enjoy it (laughs) thank you very much Brad, I know you're a tech whiz and you integrate technology into your work with children. You've been developing an app that you hope will help parents and educators. What is your app about 
And do you have an estimated release date? Yes, well, I'm very excited because I have had the idea for this app for a few years now and had a few hurdles along the way because I've attempted to try and do it myself and got part of the way but then realised I needed some help. So just start finding the right connections to get to the finish line. So I found someone earlier this year. The app is a visual support app designed to help parents, carers and educators, even therapists facilitate a smooth transition from one event or a task or a venue to another. Right. Um, and it's called First and Then and we hope that it will be available on the App Store or and the Google Play in the next three to six months. So it's in the early stages of production, but the fact that I know that there's going to be a finish line soon uh, is very very exciting. So you're working with visual pictures so that people can have them on their iPhone and they can just use them with the children? Yeah, a lot of schools would use them and a lot of parents that have probably gone through speech therapy getting the initial visual supports drummed into them that that helps the children. A lot of them would have set up a first and then piece of paper laminated and just using different visuals that you've laminated with Velcro and you stick to the first and then you stick another picture to the then. And so... It's It's just a bit limited, isn't it? It's just a bit limited and it's not spontaneous. They're not all out with you when you're at the park. No, that's right. A trouble. And it costs a lot in Velcro too and and laminating (laughs) sheets. So it's going to be a very simple app. There's a lot of apps for communication and visual support that are very complex and you almost need a degree to understand, especially as a parent, that's quite um, overwhelming and Mm. and daunting. So my idea for this app is just to make it as simple as possible. Easy to use. Easy to use. So that's the key. So it's going to be great for parents. It's going to be good for classrooms. I mean, we're still using the first and then with a lot of our students that need that support with transition. And even sort of with reward systems, like just saying, you know, first we're going to do our writing and then you can have the iPad is a a visual that we set up a lot. So even just to have that ready on the iPad or, or out and about. And therapists, I'm sure, would be able to utilize it as well. So... Looking forward to sometime before June, hopefully. Good. We'll put a link to that on the website. Uh, The other project you are both working on together is a new book. So what is this book about and when are you hoping that will be finished? So this one is called Keeping It Real. And what this is, is pretty much an A to Z of activities and experiences and different things that would be relevant to a person living with autism. For example, under H might have haircuts and we'll talk about what our experience has been like with both boys being quite different in personality. How did we go with haircutting? No, how did we not go, more importantly? (laughs) Uh, But then what have we done over the years and what have we learnt in terms of making that into a smoother transition so that we can now have a successful haircutting experience? So, yeah, same sort of thing. It might be shopping or bedtime or swimming or just just be A to Z. So some... There might not be much for some letters, but some letters will have a lot. But yeah, just basically practical ideas, strategies, stories. And basically, we just know that when we were young parents, well, we still are young parents, but when we were young, <laughs> younger parents, we would have really appreciated having a book like this where we don't necessarily have to read it all from A to Z, although I probably would have done that. But just knowing that there's other parents out there who are a little bit further along the track and this is what they did and maybe just some ideas that could be helpful so we just want to help other parents who are going on along the same journey that we've been on and the other is you make it short so you can just look up what you need at the time because parents don't have time to sit down and read a big book from front to back they may not that's right or they might fall asleep 
but like, I don't know. And we've, <laughs> we've just come back from going overseas for the first time with the two boys. Um, yeah. Taking on a nine-hour flight to Ooh. Hong Kong. Yes. And, and this is something that we've always liked to have done, but had always sort of put off because, oh. Uh -huh. Never thought we could do it. They're, they're yeah. going to keep everyone up. They'll make some right. noise. They'll run around the, the plane. Yes, Yeah, we were really concerned. So we've covered plane travel yeah. in, our, in our book as well, so that people are wanting to take their child overseas, maybe thinking like what we did for many years, oh, we could never do it. But then actually, you can. It, it was amazing. Going to Disneyland, it was a dream come And true. so we just talk about just some of the, the ways that we just sort of tried to make it as successful uh, as possible. And Although we did make a couple of mistakes this time too, it was only our first time, but we put those in there as well, uh, so that hopefully that will help somebody else. So you'll be going on another trip then, maybe next year, so you can iron out those issues. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. I imagine that for a lot of parents, they give up doing things, taking their child out to the park, taking their child to the shop, going for that haircut, because it just seems so overwhelming and stressful. Is that true? Yeah, well, absolutely. One of the things that uh, we tried to do when they were younger and had some difficulties was camping. It's one family outing that we haven't done for many, many years. and uh, Not in a tent. We've gone in a little unit sort of thing. Right. Well, but in the early days we did oh, do yeah, the, we the just, camping. But yeah, we gave that's up. one of those things that we go, eh, not doing that again. So right. it's because yeah. it's, it's an overwhelming uh, thought of what, you know. There was not enough fences at camping. That was the main <laughs> thing. But it was really a hard thing. So, yeah, you do. There are certain things that as your friends who have got children the same age, they can do. We couldn't always do those same things, going to the snow. Even going to Sydney for a day was a really hard thing to do. It's a lot better now in terms of waiting in lines, going on public transport, just being near roads. There were so many challenges um, with the kids. And as they got bigger, they were harder just to pick up. So, um, yeah, so I don't, it, it they does. they run faster. Yeah, they could, yeah. exactly. We just hope our book's going to encourage people to maybe have a, just a little idea that might mean that maybe they can try something yes. that they had otherwise given up on. So maybe there'll be nothing new. Maybe it will just be a confirmation of what they're already doing because I think a lot of parents and carers of people with autism start to become quite creative and quite resourceful but at the same time they can sometimes also yeah as you said get tired and give up on things as well so yeah we hope it will be helpful we hope to finish it by the end of the year good we'll have a link to that too when it's done yay yes. we better get we better get to work Brad. Okay. <laughs> jen and brad thank you for being part of the early childhood research podcast today i really appreciate your willingness to be open and to share your experiences with us it's been truly eye-opening from my perspective to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you it's been great to be with you. Thanks so much. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Jen and Brad. You can find the first half of this interview in episode 11, Loving and Teaching Children with Autism. You can find a transcript, links to Brad and Jen's books and app, and links to other items mentioned at lizesearlylearningspot.com. Just click on the podcast tab, and look for episode 12. If you've enjoyed this interview, it would help us out if you went to iTunes to submit a rating and review. Thank you for joining me to learn a little more about early childhood education, and I wish you happy teaching and learning. Thanks for listening to the Early Childhood Research Podcast at www.lizesearlylearningspot.com.